This podcast features three supposed adults who definitely use adult language. They're also supposedly writers who are definitely not procrastinating by making this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to No Bad Ideas, the storytelling game show where we take the worst ideas from the internet and try to turn them into stories that are actually good. My name is Gabriel Urbina, and I am your first Bad Ideas host. My name is Zach Valenti. I am your second Bad Ideas host. And we are sorry to say that we are slightly Sarah-less uh, today. I don't know why I say slightly. We are completely sans Sarah. In spirit. In spirit. In spirit. She sends her apologies. She'll be back in action next week. But we do have a special guest star to join us today. They're a writer, a director, a maker of things, a filmmaker, a good friend of ours. It's Megan Wong. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. So great to have you here. Megan, if we listed kind of everything that you have done in your career, it would probably take the whole runtime of the show. No. <laughs> uh, do you want to just say like three things that you've done, like three favorite projects that you have embarked upon? Well, most recently I did two videos for Mitski. That was really fun. Nice, um, nice. She's a really good friend of mine. We had a really good time making them. So I did video the videos for Stay Soft and The Only Heartbreaker. And then I worked on the show Shogun for FX, which is based on the James Clavell novel that's coming out hopefully next year. And so I feel like that's a good thing to plug. I was just a writer on it. It was fun. I uh, worked with my just old boss. Just a writer on it. Uh-huh. I mean, that's how it feels. Um, <laughs> but I was worked with my old boss, Justin Mark. So I worked with on Counterpart, which is on Stars. If anyone wants to check out our Labor of Love that was canceled. Uh, so, we, we, we always yeah. champion Labors of Love that were canceled here on No Bad Ideas. Yeah. So. Everybody check out Counterpart. <laughs> watch it on Amazon Prime. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good, that's a good summary. <laughs> yeah, that's a good primer. Everyone should go check all of that out. Um, and you're also working on a couple of new things, which we may talk about in the back half of the show. So, uh, that's a little preview of things to come, but. Before we do that, we do have some business to take care of. This is, after all, No Bad Ideas, the show where we find articles or uh, posts or just anything that describes some really terrible idea that somebody had. And then we kind of go, well, if we were a writer's room somewhere and the exec slapped this article on the table and was like, I want this to be a great movie. You have 10 minutes. Come up with a pitch. What would we pitch them in that pressure cooker environment? I've got the first bad idea today. Um, Zach, Megan, are you guys ready to jump on in? Ready. Absolutely. Alrighty. And dear listeners, if you would like to read along, there will be a link to this article in the episode description. Our first bad idea comes to us from the Huffington Post from their weird news section. And the headline reads, Man pushes peanut up Colorado mountain using unconventional body part. Uh, we'll get there. Like his dick? Safe for we'll, work. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> oh, you know that we don't have those in this show, Zach. No, no, I know. So let's jump into the article proper. A 53-year-old Colorado man didn't crack under the pressure as he pushed a peanut to the top of a 4T 
13,115 foot summit this week. Colorado Springs resident Bob Salem marked the end of his seven day peanut pushing odyssey when he finished his trek up Pikes Peak on Friday, KRCC reported. The man did most of the push at night, he told the radio station, and went through roughly two dozen peanuts along the way. Salem, however, didn't use his hands to move the peanut along the 12.6-mile route to the top of the mountain. Waving. Uh, For clarity, it -hmm. was not the same peanut at the top of the mountain as it was at the bottom of the mountain? Well, because when you, you know, push a peanut up a mountain, there's some wear and tear on the peanut. Okay. Um, and, you know, over the course of seven days, he had to keep replacing the peanut. Got it. So this is got... the conceptual lifting of uh, yes, an a single peanut. peanut. This is a statistical peanut. Yes. Mm. We're, we're going to get to just like how pointless this exercise is shortly. Okay. Don't even, don't, don't you even worry. But we're okay, going to I'm going to have words for the, uh, uh, what is that world record the, the Guinness people, the Guinness people, if they've acknowledged this, <laughs> please go on. Okay, so he didn't use his hands to move the peanut along the 12.6 mile route to the top of the mountain. The man decided to let his nose do the pushing. His nose had the aid of a homemade contraption, as he calls it, a CPAP sleep machine with a duct tape spoon to it during his journey, wow. according to KRCC. However, hold on to your butts because... This is not the first time someone has accomplished the feat. <laughs> In a segment on the mountain's peanut pushers, the Travel Channel highlighted <laughs> Texas craftsman Bill Williams' journey with a peanut to win a $50 bet in 1929. I'm not religious, but the flood is coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like we deserve to be punished for this, yes. <laughs> Um, in 1963, Ulysses Baxter pushed a peanut up the mountain in eight days, a record at the time. Salem reportedly beat the previous record by one day. Salem, who did the peanut push to celebrate the city of Manitou Springs' 150th birthday, is the first person in the 21st century to complete the push. All right. So that is what I have for you. A man pushes not one peanut, but a multitude of peanuts up a mountain using his nose at night to repeat an accomplishment that only happened because of a $50 bet in 1929. And since then, multiple people have been like, I can do that, but better. I can improve upon that. So how would we do this really low-key remake of Fitzcarraldo uh, justice? 10 minutes on the clock, starting now. Well, I think the most essential thing is that we need to have a very compelling motivation. So (laughs) if we want to try to make this good, I would argue that Mr. Salem's great, great grandfather Mm -hmm. originally lost the peanut challenge (laughs) and therefore needs to like rectify. Well, actually, we should pick a genre, but if like he's being maybe he's being haunted and he needs to rectify this loss and make (laughs) the dent in the Guinness World Book of Records to um, save his family's name. I also think for the movie, you know, let's just make it one peanut. It's a little easier to understand. Sure. The peanut replacing is not going to be that cool in the movie. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit part of the drama of like he needs to get yeah. there before the peanut is worn down exactly. to nothingness. Yeah, I think it'll be a little bit more compelling than a and then a, repla- a constantly replaced peanut. 
seriously but taking other pitches on the motivation you know we can we can go no i love child. this motivation i am I'm, I'm more focused on maybe the uh the sort of structural rapper uh just for some some comps uh that come to mind okay the rat race um mm. uh, i'm wondering like maybe there's like a lot Are there of multiple people trying to push so the peanut is, up the mountain. This is my question: Like, is it just that he's being haunted, or is it that the like biennial, you know, sort of like the every hundred years there is the great peanut push and uh, and hijinks ensue, or or is this more of a contemplative film where it's just like one man, one mountain, one peanut? <laughs> <laughs> The worst part is I kind of think that both could work. It kind of just like depends because yeah, yeah, there is the version of it where you just get like eight of the funniest people right now. And it's yeah. like, I'm an eccentric millionaire. Whoever gets this peanut up the mountain in first gets $10 million. You're each getting a randomly assigned body part that is the only way that you can touch the peanut. You're all starting on different points of the mountain, go. And then the next hour and a half is just them you know, slowly trying to like struggle up the mountain as they encounter badgers and bears or something. But then there is also the version of it that could be directed by Terrence Malick, and it is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just one man's slow contemplation of a peanut as he goes up the mountain and it would last four hours. The rat race version's more fun and commercial in a lot of ways because you can cast, you know, more people instead of one sad, sad man. I think so. I think that also the problem with the Terrence Malick version is that we would kind of be done because the script would be fade in, a man yeah. pushes a peanut up a mountain, fade out, and yep. somehow it would last three and a half hours. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So let's go with let's go with the comedy version with the with <laughs> the all the different race. people. Yeah. Wow. And one of them can still be like the great grandson of the person that originally lost this challenge or something. Like Absolutely. I think we can bring this in, and they can be kind of the real ostensible personal hero. motivation. Yeah. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. So we have uh, our our hero, um, or uh, at least the person that we're following, um, who who needs to sort of re-catch the fire for their family's name. Do we want to fill in the, the cast? Uh, I guess, is there like a sort of villainy character? Hmm, that's a good question. And I guess like the villain, if there was one, it could either be someone who's cheating or someone who is entering this race, but they have like a lot of, you know, like advantages that they've bought because they come from wild privilege or something like that. Like someone that just kind of has some unfair advantage over everyone else, maybe. It feels like what if there's the rich great great grandson of the original winner who Ooh. has oh, shit. the family's name <laughs> and therefore it's a bit of a family feud. And right. then the craziest person can win, of course. And, and then maybe they both have foundations that they want to donate their money to. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, but the, the grandson winnings. of the person that won, that prize money has now compounded over time. So they now have That's right. extreme wealth and can you know have all of these yeah. advantages because their grandfather won however many years ago. I like that. <laughs> The fifty dollars has turned into. That's right. <laughs> Look, when that, when that money was by gold, five thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
idea that we can also inflate the original price. It can, be, it can be however much. Yeah. Maybe the uh, it should the, be property. The unfavored Ooh, yeah. person, the 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 person who we would be sad. It would be a, a sad ending if they won. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they're they've taken their family fortune and they've sort of parlayed it into being some kind of like a prank YouTube sensation. Um, so ah. the, the whole world is cheering for them just because they don't know about the other. Yeah, our our underdog. Sure, sure. Yeah. And then they've cheated. Maybe the original one they suspect has cheated before. So we have a little parallel so that the the new cheater learns a little bit of a lesson at the end. And then someone else wins the money and they split the prize with both families and the family feuds resolved. Nice. I really like it. I dig I it. I dig like it. it. <laughs> that also shook the possibility in my brain of sort of time jumping where we have like the great grandfathers. Yes. It's, it's actually a film about intergenerational trauma. Yeah. And that's <laughs> the low key pitch <laughs> for the movie. Uh, they used to be best friends that had a falling Ooh. out over their oh, no. peanut bed. Wow. Because the bet was for uh, the house and somebody lost their home that's mm-hmm. now worth millions of dollars. Oh my God. Wow. Not the title, but the sub like the sort of marketing line what's a peanut between friends (laughs) (laughs) terrific question mark um okay but i really do I, i really do like this sort of you know dueling timelines thing because you can kind of uh, if you're cutting back and forth between them, you kind of know how it ends. But at first, in the past, they're such great friends and they're helping each other with adversity. As you are kind of filling in the like, what happened? Like, what drove these people <laughs> apart? And that can be twisty and turny. All right. I like that quite a bit. <laughs> and maybe just to like bring back in losing your peanut, maybe the uh, the original winner ate the other <gasps> guy's peanut. <laughs> And that's how he lost, was there was no peanut to push. Wow. A oh real my cheating God. move. And yeah. our, our contemporary uh, characters maybe have, an, uh, have a moment where they have a standoff, and one of them, the, the guy whose grandfather lost, had the chance to eat it, but has more character than that. And I think the losing family's flaw is that they are a bit arrogant. Because mm-hmm. I think the losing family should have challenged them to the bet, thinking they could never lose or lose their house. Right, right. And then this new family has the same sort of arrogant flaw of like, well, this is like what we have to do. And so that can be their little arc. It's what we do. <laughs> so we I want to raise the stakes a little bit. Which one of them has a peanut allergy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ponder that and also ponder what the title for this Odyssey might be in the 30 seconds that are left on the clock. Uh, I'm bad at titles, so I guess. What were you going to say, Zach? Nuts. Um, oh, not, all right, all right. Not race? Ex- exclamation point. <laughs> not race. That's pretty good. Uh, and I think that, like, the protagonist is the one with the peanut allergy, and okay, that's okay. why he needs the contraption, because he can't, uh, like, you know, push it directly. rescue. That's right, that's yeah. right. Uh, and on that line, CPAP to the rescue, that is time. Dang. <laughs> Terrific. What well a done, terrible guys. idea. Thank you, Gabrielle. <laughs> no, I saw that. And like, yeah, like it is framed so that you're immediately kind of like, oh, my God, tell me they weren't using their dick to push it up a mountain. Yeah, God. And then you're like a little bit relieved that it's not. But then you hear all the other details and you're like, this sounds so 
pointless yeah. in about 14 different ways. Why would it anybody do like this? It sounds bad for your back. Yeah, like, it sounds like horrible. It's like, are you just hunched pushing it up? It must be terrible. I don't know. I tried to see if there was any like video documentation of what it looked like, <laughs> but no, I wasn't able to find any. That's if I'm the real able to crimes. track one down, I'll post it on our Twitter so people should check that out. <laughs> I want the live stream. <laughs> oh, no. Ooh. Well, um, that was lovely. And uh, I think we will soon regret leaving the mountaintop uh, oh, no. to come back down to Earth in a more grounded, more police-based idea. Oh, no. Um, join me, if you will, in melmagazines.com. <laughs> Robert mm-hmm. Jordan, the man who Connecticut police said was, quote, too smart to be a cop. Oh, no. Oh, Jesus. Brace yourselves. In 1997, the 46-year-old sued his local police department after being denied a job there because he scored too high on an intelligence test. What? More bizarre still, the courts sided with law enforcement. With the police, of course. Oh, in late May 1997, 46-year-old Robert Jordan filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court against the city of New London, Connecticut. In the suit, he claimed the police department there had violated his constitutional rights when it determined that he was too intelligent to be a cop. As the Associated Press reported at the time, Jordan says assistant city manager Keith Harrigan, who oversees hiring for the city, told him, we don't like to hire people that have too high an IQ to be cops in this city. <laughs> uh, in a subsequent interview, with CBS this morning, Jordan recalled his reaction, saying, I was just taken aback. Philosophically, I found it offensive to the entire profession of law enforcement. The logic the police department employed for their hiring process was clear cut. Any okay. applicant who scored too high on the intelligent test would grow bored with police work and would leave law enforcement. New London estimated uh, it spent $25,000 training each new police recruit so they couldn't afford to lose money training applicants who would quit police work soon after leaving sure. the academy. The screening sure. process that Jordan underwent was conducted by a company named Law Enforcement Council of Southeastern Connecticut, Inc., and the test he took was a well-known assessment called the Wonderlick Personnel Test and Scholastic elastic level exam. The manual that accompanied the test listed recommended scores for various professions and cautioned that because overqualified candidates may soon become bored with unchallenging work and quit, simply hiring the highest scoring employee can be self-defeating. Per Uh Jordan's suit, Jordan scored a 33, but the average police patrol officer scored a 21. When Jordan overheard that the department was interviewing potential new hires and he wasn't one of them, he asked about his prospects. The assistant city manager informed him that, unfortunately, he didn't fit the profile. At first, Jordan assumed it was due to his age. At 46, he would have likely been the oldest cadet in the academy. But he filed an administrative complaint with the Connecticut (laughs) Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Uh, FOIA request, yeah. And that's when he learned it was his high Wonderlick score that was actually the issue. (laughs) Quote, we all know talented, intelligent people that pursue successful careers in law enforcement, Jordan said at the time. I just couldn't accept it. I found out there was absolutely no evidence. There is no connection between your basic intelligence and job satisfaction or longevity on the job. Plus, he simply didn't 
like how this looked. Quote, what kind of message does this, that send to children? He asked. Study hard, but not too hard. And so he went to court and accused the city of and the New London Police Department of violating his uh, right to equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Uh, the city, meanwhile, argued that the police were, in fact, able to exclude Jordan based on his smarts. Amazingly, the city won. A judge agreed that there was a reasonable expectation that cops not be too intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan appealed that decision, oh, and in 2000, so he finally got his day in court. But once again, he lost. The, uh -huh. the second U.S. Court of Appeals in New York upheld the Connecticut District Court's decision. The ruling was centered on the legal determination that Jordan's 14th Amendment protections hadn't been violated since the, quote, same standards were applied to everyone who took the test. The most frustrating uh -huh. part for Jordan was that the court determined it didn't matter if smarter cops were indeed more likely to leave law enforcement. Instead, the legal question came down to whether Jordan's constitutional rights had been violated. As it was explained in the court's decision against his appeal, we conclude that even absent a strong proven statistical correlation between high scores on the Wonderlick test and turnover resulting from lack of job satisfaction, it is enough that the city believed, on the basis of material prepared by the test maker and a letter along similar lines sent by the Law Enforcement Council of Southeastern Connecticut, that there was such a connection. Uh, plaintiff presented some evidence that high scores do not actually experience mere, uh, more job dissatisfaction, but that evidence does not create a factual issue because it matters not whether the city's decision was correct so long as it was rational. In other words, all that matters is that the city, quote, believed the test worked as long as that belief was equally applied, no constitutional rights were violated. In the face of defeat, Jordan accepted his fate, but when he spoke to the press, he painted himself as the new face of discrimination in 1990s America. Oh boy. Uh, this kind of puts an official face on discrimination in America against people of a certain class, he explained. I maintain you have more the control over your- The most pressing kind of uh, you know, discrimination in America. We must do <laughs> something right. about it. That's right. Bad ideas ensue. Uh, I maintain that you have no more control over your basic intelligence than your eye color or your gender or anything else. But there was a silver lining for Jordan. After his testing debacle, he was still able to land a new job at the Department of Corrections, proving that at least he wasn't too smart to be a prison guard. Wow. And with that chilling resolution, Jesus. I put 10 minutes on the timer. Please, dear God, rescue all of us from this train wreck. Uh, what do you think, Megan? Do you have like an instinct about where to take this horror show? <laughs> <laughs> um. Like, my brain kind of goes to like a sci-fi, like <laughs> the giver society sort of a thing where like at a certain age you take a test and that kind of determines what you're going to be and you're just kind of assigned mm. that role. You didn't want to do neg like inverse limitless? <laughs> uh, inverse what, sorry? Wasn't there that movie with like the super agent who was like taking pills to be like super smart and fast and awesome, and we just do the opposite? Or they just have I mean, to take maybe. One. Anyway, be dumber. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it was a terrible idea. Oh my god. But yeah, but like the so sci-fi idea is good because at least it takes us out of this space <laughs> <Yeah>. in particular. <laughs> the dark drama of essentially what must be a psychopath who just wants to be in control of other people. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand who that man is. <laughs> no, there's like 
like it's like it's it's an interesting article because like the longer it goes, the less sympathy I have. Oh my for god! Him yes. in a twisted way. Yeah. No, the branding um, himself is the face of the disc- the new face of discrimination in the '90s. I think was the nail in the coffin. <laughs> yeah, that really went poorly. Wanting to go to be a corrections officer is like, yeah. what are you looking for? Power? Okay. Yeah, yeah, and like like that is what is fascinating. It is sort of this like no, he got what he wanted is... all along—a nightstick and permission to use it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 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 Jesus. But yeah, something where (laughs) this idea of like, you have to take a test and, you know, kind of taking it to the logical extreme because the article does mention, we recommend not just cops, but for all roles, you know, if you are too intelligent, don't get this job because you'll get bored and leave. Uh, But like, you know, taking it to an extreme where everything in a society is kind of based around this idea. And yeah, I guess it's it's a little bit like a reverse Gattaca or a reverse Limitless Act. Yeah, where like someone has like a dream job that they really want to do and they kind of have to pretend play dumb yeah i guess i don't know um (laughs) (laughs) like it'd be funny if it was like you know they really wanted to be like an athlete or something they really wanted to be on a football team or something and it's like nope too smart this is like a different version of that i don't know Mm -hmm. if it will work but it's like what if you take a test where it determines your psychopathy level Ooh. Okay. And you assume that it can't be, they assume that. Right, like you so, can't score too like, low on this. Like theoretically, the only problem yeah, is if you well, score high. Yeah, because it's like, well, it's the future. The people who create the most havoc in our society have realized the super rich, exploitative people, not not always rich, but the super exploitative people tend to be like higher on the scale, the murders, whatever. whatever. So what if we yeah. just like sorted them out? What if we got rid of them? Yeah. <laughs> we just put them somewhere else. But then it's like, well, what if, what if that's wrong and we're not thinking about nature versus nurture and maybe mm-hmm. you can like nurture away some of the psychopathy there are some jobs for which you really want that so, ruthless yeah, edge so that like nature gave people <laughs> come on so maybe somebody scores high on it but like starts to become an adaptive psychopath <laughs> 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 Good in the good egg section, trying to uh, prove that they can be, you know, nurtured into uh... good psychopaths for people too. <laughs> yeah. So I, so so I like this both because I think this is a promising idea for a very very strange but compelling story, and also because once I give up my cushy job as a podcaster and start that punk band, adaptive psychopath will be our name, and I'm very happy to have that settled. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's that's that is very interesting, and like it's like you know, Minority Report. <laughs> I, I, yeah, like the, the, it is almost like a lost Philip K. Dick novel of just kind of you know like the the psychopath report or something. Yeah, I wonder if if like the frame protagonist sort of in the like like Jay Gats is not the main is not the narrator in The Great yeah. Gatsby is like the sort of like researcher uh, like vaguely like a brave new worldy of you just have the person who's like they, they've got their their logs of like today was day one with the new patient <laughs> I think there's room for improvement, but it is going to be a long climb. <laughs> it's like flowers for Algernon. Hmm. Yeah. So, like the yeah, I don't know. No, say more. Say more. <laughs> I don't have more. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to be. I just want to be clear. So, is the problem 
that someone. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that this idea broke all three of our yeah, brains. Yeah, the problem clearly. is that I broke you with this the idea. I'm sorry. Is that, yeah, like you know, like we are not equipped to reckon with this within the fictional universe of the story that we're trying to pitch. Uh, is the problem that someone wants a job but they're not scoring high enough on the path scale to get it, and so they or, have to. Is or? it right? Or so, yeah. Is, is it that like basically somebody is trying to fake their way into the job they want, knowing that in true psychopath fashion? Um, or mm-hmm. is it that society is, or some sect of society is coming around to trying to find a place for their psychopath brothers and sisters? And this is like the story <laughs> of one of those experiments, perhaps gone awry, perhaps not. Starring Tom Hardy and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn in their Bronson reunion. (laughs) Is this Jurassic Park for psychopaths? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, like that is a little bit. There is that version of it where it is just kind of like if you score high on this test, you just get shipped off to (laughs) Skull Island, where you know there is the psychopath population but uh ooh, i don't know Jesus. we can go back to intelligent tests, <laughs> intelligent tests. <laughs> right but like you know like i do keep getting drawn back towards the idea of you know you like usually the problem is you didn't score well enough on this test yeah you need to work hard and raise your score I am compelled by the idea of no, 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 no. We are denying you this thing that you want because you scored too highly. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of go in and tank the test. And then it's like, well, never mind. That problem, that one was clearly a fluke. Come on board. But then you need to act the way that reflects your score. You kind of can't. And I don't know. Like, you know, I think that like the oversimplistic way to do it is sort of that, you know, it's like the old joke where it's like, they all of a sudden say a five syllable word and everyone is looking at them like, wait a minute. And they're like, ah, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, ah, uh, da, da, da. And they say like, you know, the like much more basic version of it. I still, I, I still feel that that is like punching down okay, in a so bad way, but yeah. What if we did the indie character drama version where it's just like, this guy really wants to be a cop, scores mm-hmm. too high, has to feed his family, plays really dumb. Then over the course of the movie realizes like, wait, I am too smart to be a cop. Because mm-hmm. cops shouldn't exist. And now I don't believe in cops at all. And we need to, I have to fight against the whole policing system because I was so smart. I see all the cracks in it. And now I'm like an activist. <laughs> I mean, I think that that is the only way to probably make something that resembles the original story in a like, you know, <laughs> forward thinking if like the conversation that we're currently grappling with about policing in America, especially if this is set in America, I yeah. think that like, yeah. you know, if this was a story set in a different place, like a quiet, like Swedish township. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and they use that. Maybe if you kept the legal stuff, the legal stuff is more of a, com- if you wanted to make it a legal drama, the legal yes. stuff is more of like yeah, a compelling could. way that the argument's not like I'm being discriminated against, but more like, what does it mean for a policing system to have these people be intentionally less intelligent so they don't poke mm-hmm. holes in how flawed it is? Yeah. Absolutely. Somehow. And with that incredibly timely 
prescient and incisive question. That is, in fact, time. Uh, that, ate, <laughs> that ate us alive, Zach. Jesus oh my Christ. God. <laughs> well done wrestling with maybe the worst idea I will ever bring to this show. <laughs> Wow. No, but like, again, like just kind of like the arc of that man, as we learn more and more from oh the article, is absolutely boggling. My Lord. <laughs> it does, in fact, get worse and worse, which is uh, why I thought it might be a good fit. Um, yeah. yeah, that was great. We're going to go stare into the abyss for a minute and uh, be back after these messages. Hello there, Zach Valenti, jumping into this episode with this brief reminder that we have an active Patreon page to support the production of No Bad Ideas and all the other crazy worlds we're building behind the scenes. To check that out, scope the sweet rewards we offer for monthly subscriptions, as well as how to sign up yourself. Head on over to NoBadIdeasPodcast.com slash support. Once more, that's nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. If you already support the show, we so appreciate that. And regardless, thank you for listening. All right, let's get back to more No Bad Ideas. Alrighty, welcome back to No Bad Ideas after those blisteringly fascinating uh, messages that we just heard. Weren't they great? So we are here uh, with our good friend, Megan Wong. And Megan, as we said at the top of the show, you've done a lot of different things. Um, but the one that I thought maybe might be an interesting place to begin with, because I'm selfishly very interested in it, is some of the work that you've done with music videos. Because... Here at No Bad Ideas, you know, we take two bad ideas basically as a prompt and try to spin off a story from that. But I am always continually fascinated by how do music videos get conceptualized? Like, you know, someone gets handed a song. They're told, you know, we want a musical, excuse me, not a musical. We want a video, a visual interpretation of it. How does that happen? And, you know, normally music videos don't have written by credits. Yours are ones where I absolutely kind of feel like they should have written by credits because they kind of tell big involved stories within sort of the frame of the song. And they're not usually, I think, stories that are reflected necessarily one to one in the songs themselves. You know, like the Mitski song Happy doesn't sort of, you know, go like, I think my husband is cheating on me and I'm discovering <laughs> these things, you know. Uh, you kind of like created a story around it. Um, so how does that process begin and unfold for you? Kind of, you know, when you are assigned or when you kind of assign yourself the idea of a music video, kind of where do you start thinking about what that music video is going to be? So the when you get sent a music video, there can be a bunch of different prompts. So a lot of times it's called a brief. And so there'll be a brief where it will say the budget when they want the video, the song, you'll get to send the song. And then sometimes, but not always, you'll get sent a visual deck from the artist 
or like a couple references or just mm. like a general idea. They're usually not very flushed out, but it depends on the artist. Like I've been sent stuff that's fully flushed out. I tend not to do those. I prefer sort of like an open <laughs> brief. Uh-huh. Um, so what I do is I listen to the song. I see if I connect to it emotionally, because that's kind of the most important thing to me is that I just feel like it's saying something or provokes something that really resonates with me personally. Totally. And then I listen to it a lot and often like write the lyrics out myself instead of reading them what they sent and I just kind of write it out and like break the song down and then I think about like two things at once I really like world building so I tend to think first ooh like what's a cool world that Mm -hmm. this song could be set in and then the other thing I think about almost simultaneously or like in a different part of my brain is what's like the emotion that this provokes in me and then I think it's like for the happy video, the song's called happy, but it's not a very happy song. So it really reminded me of like 1940s and 50s melodramas where you have like a woman kind of like trapped. And incidentally, like, folks, if you have not seen this video, yeah. highly encourage you to just hit pause on this episode momentarily. <laughs> Head over to YouTube, you know, search Mitski Happy and we'll see you in three minutes. It's a fantastic music video. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so that kind of, kind of reminded me of that. And then I was just thinking like, okay, what's like an experience I've had that's personal to me. And I remember being in a relationship with someone where I felt like I kind of thought they were cheating on me, but I wasn't sure. But then mm. I sort of realized they were, you know, like lacking in empathy. And that was sort of worse. Mm-hmm. Almost. It was like, I've been dating someone who's like maybe more of a monster than just like a cheater. Yeah. And like, and so I was just trying to encapsulate that within like some type of narrative. And that's kind of how I approach all of them. So I just try to think, that's how I approach writing in general is I just try to think like, what's an emotional experience that I've had that I find really interesting or personal to myself. Cause I do think the score says you quote that like all the, all the best art is personal is really true. And you really have to locate what is meaningful to you because it's so much work and you just have to really care about it. And then I work backwards from there. So, um, that's awesome for the only heartbreaker video. I was like, well, this song makes me feel like, all those times when you just feel like everything's out of your control and everything you do is wrong and you can't fix it. And you just like everywhere you step and go and everything you do, you just feel like you're bad, (laughs) a Uh bad person. And so then I just kind of made like a metaphorical story where she essentially has Midas touch, which I didn't even know what that was when I wrote the treatment and destroys the world. But I think that's because it's a feeling that people can have. So I try to start with like the feeling or the emotional experience over anything else. Cause also that's what I find most interesting and compelling about film. Like I go to the movies to feel things, to kind of like have a cathartic experience or just be provoked in some way. I don't necessarily go to the movies to think or like learn. Those Mm -hmm. aren't things that I really get. Like I'd rather read a book or an article. Um, I think that's like what's fun and powerful about cinema is that it's the stuff that you can't, it's the intangible, it's the intangible emotions that you can't necessarily describe because otherwise, like, why are you watching a movie um, or making a movie or making art or painting whatever? So that's kind of where I start. And then I just work from there. And like, sometimes I do have like limitations with the artists, like for the Stay Soft video, Mitski really wanted to dance. Okay. Um, And so I was just thinking how to integrate that and 
And then for the Hanavu video, she wanted it to have like kind of a gritty look. So I took a lot of inspiration from Hong Kong movies, like Too Many Ways to Be Number One and other things like that. And like using like more of a wide angle lens um, and like just worked that into my idea. Right. Like so, you know, you get some visual limitations or like like, you know, like because it's still the artist branding themselves. So you still want to work closely yeah. with them. What's a great what's weird about music videos, though, is that's like I think sometimes people watch and I think, oh, it's like the artist. And I think, yeah, that's true. But if you're making a really big movie, you still have to work with the actor's persona and like really integrate it into the work. So in a way, mm -hmm. I think it's like very good experience for that, where you have you, th this is a person and it's a real person who has a point of view and a set of skills and strengths and weaknesses that you have to also make work into like whatever you're doing. And so in that sense, I find it to be like a really good pro and you still have to do it with any movie, but I think you know, the bigger the star, the more the baggage. And obviously musicians have like a lot of baggage by the nature of being by nature of being musicians. That's awesome. Seriously. But yeah. Yeah. Now you said, I think the no bad ideas favorite term based on the questions that we get in our email inbox about writing, which is world building. Um, mm. Our audience uh, really can't get enough of that world building. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which I find fascinating because it is sort of routinely something that everyone kind of has like a general sense of what we mean when we talk about world building. But the more that you kind of like dig into the details, everyone sort of approaches it at least slightly differently than everyone else. Um, so when you sort of say that, you know, you're really fascinated and drawn to world building, what do you mean by that? Sort of like what is your world building approach, as it were? I just really do care about I don't know, it changes over time, but I like aesthetics, so I like things to look like they're planned. I think that's why I like, you know, like a classic Hollywood Douglas Cirque melodrama, because it feels like there's thought put into every frame and every decision. I like movies like that. I don't not mm -hmm. everyone does, but those are movies that I like. And so to me, world building is like it, it, it depends. It's hard because it like also depends on what it is. If it's sci-fi, which I've worked on before, then it's very like how does this world work? How do these people function? How does the society build? And those are almost like really big questions. But if it's not sci-fi and it's more set in a time period, then it's also like, how does that character work within that society? So for me, world, everything with writing for me and filmmaking kind of boils down to character. Mm -hmm. So like, it's like, what's the world that this character lives in? How does this person inform what, she brings into her house, what she wears, um, what she does, how she interacts with the world. And sometimes that has to do with like large societal questions that are, you know, like impacting that person, or it can just be like a small relationship. But I think that when you feel sad and you buy a plant, there's an, like an event in your life that made you feel like, oh, I just really want like this plant to take care of. And like, that says something about you as a person. And so then you sort of can build a world all around those little decisions. And to me, that's, what's fun about world building, but also like from an aesthetic point of view, it's like, Ooh, I get to like play with a look, look the look of a forties, fifties melodrama or like, right. Oh fun. Like I'm going to try to recreate 
like for the stay soft video it's just like i just really want to recreate like this romanticism painting vibe but have it be a little bit fake looking so you know it's like a little bit of a fake world like i i'm very interested in like things being artificial i think that's like an interesting part of film like reality and not things that aren't real and it's one of the one things that i think you can that film does really well like film's like a space where you can bounce around like something being sort of uh, nothing's really full objective but like something being real an objective and something being like within someone's mind or things being a little fake or like that's just something you can do so well in film that I find really fun and interesting so I also kind of I don't know if that really answers the question but mostly just character is like I think the core to good world building and also I if I'm building if I'm working on something with sci-fi like looking at the real world is the most helpful thing where it's like you're imagining things but in a world within the limitations of something everyone can understand still but it just depends on the assignment i guess that you have before yourself (laughs) yeah no that's great i'm Um, curious as you have developed yourself and gone from i imagine like i mean I, i don't know maybe your early projects were sort of full crew uh, things, but I guess I'm just wondering, like, what it's been like for you as you've involved more collaborators over time, um, and just sort of, you know, going from an early start where you know you may not have as many resources, but you might have more control um, to what you do now. Yeah, I think. So I work in a really commercial space for my job, which is like I'm writing for TV and I'm often writing for a showrunner who has a vision. And I really view my job as bringing this other person's vision to life, adding, making their vision better if I can, doing the, helping them achieve what they want to do. If I'm writing with a director, to me, movies are directorial statements. I think writers are really important. I think everyone's really, really important. But I think the best movies historically, not all, but batting average wise, have a very strong authorial point of view where you're really like aligned with one person's vision. It doesn't mean that someone's not artistically adding something to the project or like, I think there's a great story about how Paul Thomas Anderson's production designer added like a statue to the beach in the master. And that was all Mm -hmm. her. And it's like, yeah. But the thing is, is that people are able to do that when you provide them a guiding principle and a A vision for what you want and intention so that people can play within that intention. And so I think what's been kind of lucky for me is that I feel like I've worked in this independent space where I get to be a guiding vision. And that's actually really helped me help other people guide their visions because I kind of understand and also want like I just want to work on stuff that I feel like is powerful and has something good to say and I think I'm very aware that sometimes your role in that is to be like what does this person want not what I want but then it also allows me when I work with other people when I work with like a lot of crew cinematographer production designer everybody to understand how it feels to be in a position where you're trying to help someone else's vision and understand how to talk to people so that they feel included and they want to bring their best work to the table within your set of limitations. I had a writing, one of my old bosses who's a writer said like the best producers give writers a sandbox to play in, right? Like you don't want a full beach. You don't want the world to play in. That's yeah. really hard. The you don't know what to do. Infinite is a yeah. nightmare, right. but being given, you know, so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but just that idea of, you know, like, 
as over time, I think I've just gotten better by having been able to do both jobs at the more people you bring in, the more inclusive you have to make the space, but also the more clear and, and, and like the more clear your vision has to be, the more intention you have to have. And film is expensive and there's a lot of limitations. Yeah. And so sometimes part of that is saying, oh, we can't do it the way I wrote it. Okay, what's the intention of the scene that I had? How can I rewrite it and maintain that same emotional purpose, the same story purpose, the same same character purpose? Because I can't do what yeah. I wrote because it's just, not just possible. Just like have it all the same except $50,000 cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah. Or it's entirely possible and then you have a 30 second clip and not a full video. <laughs> yep. And you just kind of have to make the, and then that's sort of my job if I'm working on a show. It's like, okay, the showrunner wants this crazy, crazy thing. We can't do it. How do we brainstorm an idea that still falls within that purpose for the story that's going to cost less money or be more efficient or do what they want? Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like that's awesome. not dissimilar to what I was saying before about coming up with a music video idea where if you kind of start with a target of like the experience you want to create or the emotion or then there are a lot of possibilities within that that can work and you're sort of just like figuring them out. And that's what I think people mean when they say writing can be like math, mm -hmm. because in that sense, it is a little bit mathy where you're like, well, you know, I need two plus two to equal four here. Yeah. And it's just not numbers. It's like concepts and they need to like create something. And that's sort of uh, the way that I think about it. And I think the more people you have, the more you have to be able to, again, just be really like clear with your idea. And, you know, also just again, it's really important, I think. You know what, how people say it's so everyone should have worked in food service, you know, how to treat a waiter or a waitress or someone in food service. Yeah. I think the same is true if you're a director. Like every director should have done another job where they weren't the director and they worked for a director. So when you're a director, you know how to treat people and how to talk to them and make them not feel like shit. And like totally. that you're demanding crazy, completely unrealistic expectations from them, which I think a lot of directors <laughs> do can do if they don't have that other experience. Yeah. And like, and if they don't the have that window into like film school, grip has probably been up yeah. since three in the morning because they had to get here at five exactly. to start getting the things set up for me so that when I rolled in at 10, everything was ready. Yeah. It's just having that co compassion really just for yeah. what people are going through and doing and that it is for your creative vision. I mean, it's such a privileged position to be putting yourself into and it does require probably like a fair amount of delusion, but um, yeah. I think that it is important and like that's the beauty of film school, right? Like I worked on so many thesis films my sophomore through senior year where I had this micro version of that, where I was an AD, a production mm -hmm. designer, a producer, a cinematographer, like, and you, it's, it seems so silly to say that it was in film school, but it was in film school where you sort of learn like, wow, I really didn't like being talked to that way. I really didn't like being expected to spend 19 hours on set with you because you wanted a certain shot that wasn't actually that fun. And my motivation did go down, even though I stayed and you just having that, those experiences baked in. Or even just like, I don't understand why you need this like crazy complicated shot. Like I don't see yeah. the value in it. And like, whereas sometimes if it's kind of a like, oh no, I've seen the storyboards. I've kind of seen the vision. I understand totally. why this fits here. Then it's a lot easier to kind of be like, cool, this is going to suck for the next four hours, but I understand the point. I understand why we're doing it. I also think sometimes like, 
just from sets I've heard on none that I've actually been on, but like directors can kind of have a sense of elitism that mm-hmm. want to foster a sense of like sense of like, well, I know better because I'm the director and I'm like so amazing. All my ideas are great. Yeah. It's like crews aren't stupid. No. So they know when you're wasting time and they like, like know the when you don't know what now, you no. want. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, I think it's like people can underestimate how aware other people are of what's going on. And yeah. again, I think your job as a director in a lot of ways is twofold it's to main it's to have get your vision like that is your job your job is to get what you want on screen but in order to do that sometimes you also have to keep people motivated and that can be a little producerial but i think good directors are also good producers yeah yeah no absolutely it's funny i was recently talking to zach and we were going this will be the intensely roman clef version because we were talking about a job that i had a couple of years ago and we were talking about how much money i took for that job and i was telling zach that you know like i would have taken and it was you know like it was i think like the fourth or fifth time that i was working with these people and i was telling zach like oh it's funny i took this amount of money i think that i would have taken half that amount if at any point somebody had written me an email that just kind of went like hey we want to just like acknowledge how like that shit yeah. this work experience has been like we want to just like acknowledge that like we have asked a lot of unreasonable things of you and you have like really rolled with the punches and thank you and kind of every time that that just like kept not happening i kind of kept being like okay well now yeah. every time that i'm gonna work with you my price is going up by it's absolutely going up by a fair bit um and yeah and like just kind of that managing motivation and managing kind of you know like making sure that yeah you every now and then do have to ask someone to do something really hard very well very fast but afterwards kind of going like hey that was really tough and you killed it thank you that can like just like go such a long way and feels like this one i think and it's and it can be hard when you i mean like everyone's been imperfect about it i'm sure i've had a shoot where i didn't properly thank everyone i'm sure like but you would just always try to be as cognizant of it as possible because I think in our really, you know, like capitalist driven society, it feels like shit when you don't feel like you're doing a good job. It's like a really bad anxiety provoking feeling that I wish I could like unlearn, but that's kind of how we've been programmed. You know, we all went to like a fairly elite private school. So we're all a little programmed to want to like get an A, the three of us at least. That's like really hard to unlearn. And so it's just like people just want to feel like they're doing a good job and that they that they did what they're supposed to do. And it lets them sleep at night and like feel good. And just putting yourself in that perspective helps so much, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we talked a lot about this idea of, you know, (laughs) we kind of took a little detour into like compassion and basic human decency land. I want to now take us back to clear, strong vision land. Um, Which I think is something that, like, we've talked a lot before previously on the show and that uh, I think gets said a lot. And I think that some people, by which I mean me, can sometimes get tripped up on the idea of, well, that sounds really great and abstract. Like, what is now the concrete version of it? Can you think of, like, some times where you've seen sort of someone and been like, that was a great way to communicate a strong vision? Or, like, like how does that communicating of the strong creative vision or the strong creative style or the strong creative aesthetic? Like, how does that express itself in your experience? 
Um, I think it's just like, again, a little bit, this is what's so weird about this job is that it's so interpersonal. Mm -hmm. So like there's some people who can just understand your vision and other people need a lot. Some people need like a lot of photos. They need a storyboard, you know, for the heartbreaker video, because it was all green screen. I made a full storyboard and a full animatic to the music that people would watch over and over again to know exactly when stuff was, because I didn't know how else to get people to know what we were doing and it was like they weren't like really detailed drawings and then we would try to pull as many images as possible and I think it was still hard for some people on the crew to like really see what we were doing and that's just because it's all made up so it's that can get hard but I think using words and images as much (laughs) as you can and just encouraging people to ask questions Mm -hmm. then that's the interpersonal part right like if, if someone's working for you and they're scared to ask questions and then there's probably something wrong where like you can't, you're not communicating well and you just need to make sure people are engaged. But like, I think it's really helpful to read challenging scripts for the writing part. You know, like I'm writing a very complex sci-fi movie right now. And I constantly read the alien script because Hmm. it's so like spare and down to the details and like, but it's still suggesting an idea. And I just look at it when I don't know what to do. (laughs) Like if like, and you know, I've done that with the matrix too before Mm -hmm. where I'm like, how did they make this make sense? And a lot of it is also like, referencing stuff in our own real world that's very very helpful so when you're doing sci-fi i think specifically and yeah just like but it's it's definitely the basically what the job is because you're not doing it like directors are kind of worthless like there's not a lot we can do the only thing we can really do is like communicate like that's kind of the whole job is communicating and so yeah just I don't know. I think it's like, I don't think there's like one great answer because it also just depends on the person. Like my co-director for the only heartbreaker, Jeff, I brought him on a couple months after I'd made the animatic and two days later he had it memorized. That's and it's awesome. like, you can't ask for a better collaborator there because he knew every single shot on his own. He just memorized it. Cause he watched it a hundred times because yeah. he understood that was what his job was. And like, then he would ask questions and it was like, this is awesome. Like I, t- we are on the same page because you are like really paying attention to what I put in front of you and he's like kind of a VFX genius so he was able to be like this is how we might be able to achieve it mm-hmm. because that's like what's so hard and I really res- yeah that's kind of I don't know yeah <laughs> no that's great that's awesome I know we have to wrap up soon but really quick I, I just wanted to sort of double tap on that tech stuff as a gearhead myself and just curious to know sort of where the line is for you in enthusiasm around new things like uh, sort of the new renaissance of project rear projection stuff with the volume and all of these new tools that are out there to to let people tell stories that would otherwise be impossible i would love we almost used a volume on the only heartbreaker video i really really wanted to because it would have been a really cool learning experience i think it's really important to know what kind of like storyteller you want to be and I want to make some crazy things that are hard <laughs> to achieve. I knew early on that I didn't want to make like 
a Sundance indie film only. Maybe I'll yeah. make one. I'm not opposed to anything. I just knew that wouldn't be the only thing I wanted to do. I think everyone's and, got one good yeah. Sundance indie film in yes, them, personally. For sure, sure. Yeah. I'm sure one day I'll make one if I get to. Like, like it's not a knock against them. I just knew I just wanted more. I want more from making movies. And so I love just challenges. Like, I, I actually approach a lot of stuff that I do, especially with music videos, is like, what am I learning from this what's the thing i'm gonna learn it's like the first video i did i was like i'm gonna focus really hard on performance sorry my dog keeps coming over and like breathing heavily um but um (laughs) the i was like i'm gonna really focus on performance because i feel like i need to get better at directing actors and i kind of just focused on that or like and i wanted to be proud of that and like or on another video be like i just really want to achieve this one thing and i think that's helped me as somebody who can have like imposter syndrome or perfectionism because it's like it's like then the goal isn't to make something perfect it's like to learn and it's also more fun to learn than to try to like have this unachievable goal essentially and that's why it's so fun to approach new things like i think that's a really good way into it it's like this is the first green screen fully vfx video i've ever made and i'm gonna learn so much and it'll probably have problems (laughs) but it's like that's you know, like what's fun about it. And you, then I also feel way more confident now knowing my own limitations working in that medium. Cause the other thing I think what makes a really great director is there's an amazing story in this book by, I'm going to forget the name right now, but it's a book about the studio system. And there's a great chapter. I always tell this story. I'm going to like die and people will be like, stop telling it. But about <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock making a movie with David O. Selznick and it was mm-hmm. Rebecca. And David O. Selznick, and I forget the exact days, was like, okay, cool. Like, the shoot's going to be 37 days. And Alfred Hitchcock's like, I need 39 and a half days or whatever. And the shoot came in at 39 and a half days. And I always think about how, like, part of being a really good filmmaker is having the experience to know exactly what you need, how long stuff takes, the time it takes, because you're able to communicate that to the producers, the money people. You're able to get what you want and what you need because you really understand your own process. And that's what experience is. That's what making music videos helps you with. That's what making short films helps you with. That's what making as many films as you get to make in our really messed up system where people get to make like five films now. And it's not like before you got to make 40, but like, you know, you have to get that experience in whatever way. And it's not just about it's it's like I guess I think of it as it's not just about like, how did I tell a really great story? That's always a priority. But sometimes what you're also learning is. I really should have had a three-day shoot (laughs) to make this what I wanted. I really needed two more key grip. Like I needed, I needed two more grips to help the key grip. We didn't have enough people. Like that's what I feel like cinematographers are constantly learning. It's like, what do I need to make what is in my head happen? And some of it is just as functional as like, you know what, when we were planning this, like we should have had more time. I should have rehearsed with the actors more. Like we didn't do this, blah, blah, blah. You know, when I do a choreography video, like, I'm really lucky because people want to do this with me, but like we do the choreography for like a week and we practice it and we film it the way we're going to shoot it before we shoot it. And that is like, we break it down based on what it is. And like that, 
helps you make something good. And I've heard about videos where they do the choreo the day of and they make it that day. And I'm like incredibly impressed by that because I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. But it's like you have to know what your quality standards are and like try to make that happen. And so much of it is just time and money. Like obviously everyone wants more time and money, but you just have a way stronger argument to get it. If you have the experience to say, I need that. Like, like that's why somebody like, you know, a really big director can demand so much because they know they're not bullshitting. So I think that's like why toys are fun anyway. Like a long winded way of saying why, but (laughs) um, yeah. I feel that this is like a trite comparison because it's been made so many times. But I think that a lot of that is like the people when people see like the chess grandmasters and the chess grandmaster is like, oh, it's going to be checkmate in 27 moves. And people are like, no way. And then 27 moves later, boom, checkmate. And people are like, how did you know? And the answer is a little bit like because they've played five million games and they've, you know, done the Sicilian and the reverse Queen's Gambit (laughs) and the this and the that and they've been up and they've been down. But part of that is just kind of that like ability of like, I'm going to like take the time and play like that, like weird variant and do this and do that and do the other. And then having like the awareness to kind of just be like, oh, no, like this needs to go this, this needs to go that, this needs to go over there. And like everything else, it's a muscle that you got to build up. Yeah. And I would say that a lot of I've seen a lot of directors rely so heavily on producers who also do have that experience Mm -hmm. to kind of dictate that for them. And I would say try to produce your own stuff, not because you should be a producer, but because every director is actually different in what they prioritize. And you need to know where you want your money to go. I take money away from camera and lighting and give it to art department. That's actually a really weird thing that I do. I will. And I just ask for that. I'm like, I don't need that camera the art department needs a thousand more dollars like most people do the opposite where camera lighting get everything because that's the system but you need to know the system that works for you not just for someone's vast experience you know you gotta like you gotta teach yourself how because the way that money is allocated affects what product you get and i think sometimes you want to check out but you just like can't you can't check out of it there's not enough money <laughs> anyway, no, but, but, to go <laughs> but also like i i have had that experience of like i've been on the set when at the end of like that short film that we were making someone i forget whether it was the dp or the producer but like someone articulated the like huh you know, for what we were needed, we didn't need this camera. We could have gotten like the cheaper model and it's like one of those yeah. things that they just said it as an offhand comment and then everyone kind of was like you know like oh my god that's like twenty thousand dollars that could have gone to like make everyone's jobs easier to like you know get us extra time get us more this get us more that and it's like oh please think about this the next time you're doing a loadout (laughs) right you know it's like for a long time i could get access to this really cheap red most dps hate shooting on a red and i was like well but it's like four hundred dollars for us to get this red for four days instead of like two grand and like that's a lot of money we're saving that can go to pay people to go to like make everyone's job easier and like it's not going to be it's to my opinion people disagree but it's like not discernible of enough a difference to me Mm -hmm. but I feel like I'm informed enough to make that decision and that's partially what it is like you have to have the experience to say I don't I'm not doing that you know like I'm making that just I'm making the decision not you yeah (laughs) Well, Megan, we could talk to you all day about this stuff, um, including yeah. <laughs> the like 50 minutes that we talked about before we actually started rolling on this episode. 
Um, but we should probably let you go. Uh, you are a busy person with a lot of things in the fire. But if our listeners want to check out more of your stuff, which they very well should, um, where should they go to find all this? Well, I guess it's all on my website. So you can just go to my my little website. It's my name, which is very difficult to spell. There's many vowels. It's M-A-E-G-A-N-H-O-U-A-N-G.com. <laughs> Three vowels in each name, you know, parents couldn't get enough. Uh, nice, so nice. just threw them all in. Um, yeah, go check it out there. Shogun should come out next year. That's exciting. And um, I have a short film that'll eventually see the light of day, but who knows when? Waiting for festivals. Worst part of the filmmaking process. <laughs> well, we can't wait until it sees the light of day um, because we really want to watch it. And when it does, or when Shogun comes out, whichever comes first, we'll definitely have you back on so we can talk more about that cool. and keep this awesome conversation going. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. This has been No Bad Ideas, produced by Gabrielle Urbina, Sarah Shackett, and Zach Valenti. Many thanks to our patrons for their partnership in making this show happen. And a special shout out to our idealist members, Jennifer Schneider, Rena Sarame, Jeffrey Felsher, and Dia. Today's episode features music by Statesher and Jazar from freemusicarchive.org. You can support the show at nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. And if you love this show, please leave a rating or review wherever you listen and share it with someone you love.